I thought I would talk this morning about a subject that is related to the comfort of God, but in a negative sense. In Matthew's Gospel, the 8th chapter, we just read about Jesus healing the leper who asked Him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus healing the centurion's servant and the substance of it was the centurion acknowledged it was all up to the will of Christ whether his servant should be healed, that he knew Christ had the authority and power. It was merely a question of whether he would choose to exercise it on behalf of this poor sick servant. And of course, the Lord healed him. And then the Lord Jesus healed a number of people who were brought to the house after he healed Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. It says in Matthew 8, verse 16, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. This text, unfortunately, is used by false teachers and has led many millions of people astray into the notion that God has promised us physical healing in this life for every illness. And the false teaching takes many varieties and shades. The fact is that we don't see that, do we, in the real world. Many believers fervently pray to be healed and never are healed. Many believers grow ill and die. We intuitively understand that death is the ultimate illness, and obviously the Scriptures tell us it is appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment. It has been since the beginning of the church, since Christ rose from the dead, the truth that though Christ rose from the dead and defeated death and hell for us, nevertheless, we must all sleep, as Paul put it. That is, we must all die unless we be alive at the return of Christ, at the great resurrection. So we don't see, in fact, God healing every illness, even sometimes when we plead for healing. And these false teachers' response is usually some version of, well, that just means you don't have enough faith because the promise is there. And this is a dastardly and destructive false teaching it lays guilt and burdens upon believers that ought not to be laid. And worse, it is backed up in many cases by false malicious teachings about Christ's death on the cross and what it was meant to accomplish and what it has accomplished. Now, I'm not criticizing a belief in merely routine divine healing that is bad enough, but what I am focusing on this morning is this viciously false doctrine that is used to prop up the view of, as it were, mandatory divine healing. And there's no doubt that God heals, and that God heals miraculously. You remember in Psalm 103, the psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all His benefits who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases, who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies, 
who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. Here it says that God heals all our diseases, but clearly the psalmist didn't apprehend that that meant in this life at this time all diseases are healed because manifestly they're not all healed. And so you have a conflict in this false teaching that God has healed all of our diseases right here, right now with what we see happening around us today. Of course, every time a person is healed of a disease, it's God's doing. And when we say that, we have to distinguish between miraculous healings and natural healings. Every time you cut your skin open, after a few weeks it heals, doesn't it? How many of you have thought about what a miracle that is, that it should knit itself together slowly but surely? But this is the mechanism that God Himself created in His creatures to heal cuts and bruises. There's the immune system that kicks in and there's all sorts of processes that are the result of the divine creation and order that God put into His creation in order to patch up and to heal various ailments, various injuries, and so forth. That doesn't mean that every time our skin heals or we get over a cold, that we've been healed with a miraculous healing. The distinction is a miraculous healing involves a direct intervention, as it were, by God, contrary to the normal processes of nature which God is responsible for creating and upholding by the word of His power. And so, in this sense, every healing is a divine healing, but every healing isn't a promised healing. And we can't blackmail God by claiming that He's promised to heal us every time we get sick. And we should be thankful to God for the natural healing. We need to have the insight and perception to realize this thing doesn't just happen all on its own. It's the result of the divine plan and purpose of God, the outworking of the laws of nature which He has established and upholds and powers from moment to moment. Now there's no doubt that Jesus healed a host of people and raised some from the dead even. That's a real miraculous healing, isn't it? And the healings that Jesus made were all miraculous because they were directed by His will at particular people and were instantly available and acknowledgeable and none could be gainsaid. And if we do have a miraculous healing, of course we should give praise to God in thanksgiving. And God does miraculously heal people on occasion in this world. The problem is distinguishing between miraculous healings and natural so-called healings, but the solution to that is to give praise to God for all things. That way we won't leave any out by mistake. There's no doubt in the Scriptures and in this world that there are occasions where God miraculously heals someone who ought not to be healed or recover. Jesus gave His disciples on occasion the power to heal in certain times. And I believe if you study the Scriptures carefully and in context, you will discover that 
these contexts in which there was, as it were, an overflowing of miraculous healing by the Lord Jesus or by His people, by His followers, that these are for the purpose of displaying the power of God and validating the gospel which was being proclaimed for the first time in these various areas, geographical areas. In addition to the healing that we just described and which are described all through the gospels, how Christ healed many, many people and raised some from the dead, we find in Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter, then He called His twelve disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases, and He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And the testimony is that they came back rejoicing because indeed they had healed the sick and cast out many devils. And in Acts 5, after Christ ascended, verse 12, "...by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest durst no man join himself to them." But the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. And then in Acts chapter 19, speaking of the Apostle Paul, he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But he departed from the synagogue and went and disputed daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And look at verse 11 of Acts 19. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul, so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases parted from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now this was, of course, special miracles. And no doubt God miraculously heals some people today, and we should pray for such. But divine healing is not promised to all who seek it in this time. Here is an example of this false view that I called from Facebook during the week. I won't say the lady's name. Some of you know her. Quote, Jesus has already paid for all our sicknesses and diseases when He paid for our sins at the cross. If you're born again, you are healed. If you don't know it, read Isaiah 53, Matthew 8, 16-19, and 1 Peter 2, 24. All King James Version. Healed in these verses refers to physically healed, not spiritually, as some teach. If you're not willing to stop insulting God by not studying His Word and wasting His time asking for something He has already done for you, you're on your own. Time for baby Christians to grow up, especially 50-year-old ones means you will have to demand your preachers actually study the Bible. Now this sort of unhinged thinking and false teaching from the Scripture is usually found amongst the Pentecostal and charismatic lines of Christianity. It is very prominent in our society. 
And these people are very, very much in denial about what happens to them, what happens to their family and friends, what the reality is of what the Scriptures teach. Now notice that she bases her teachings on Isaiah 53. And they have two little texts they like. Verse 4, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And then the end of verse 5, By His stripes we are healed. And so they believe that the death of Christ on the cross provides physical healing in this world, in this life, to all the Lord's people. Forget the fact the whole passage, Isaiah 53, is teaching us about sin and the atonement and Christ's substitution in our place for sin. It's not about healing in particular of physical diseases. But they take Matthew 8.17 as their proof that yes, it is. And notice in Matthew 8.17, Matthew cites the first verse, Isaiah 53.4, as being fulfilled when Christ healed the multitudes of people in Matthew 8. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And if you recall, Matthew's rendition of the words of that text were, Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So these are all alternate translations of the same words in the Hebrew and then later in the Greek. They take that text. See, it is talking about sicknesses and illnesses that Jesus took all of them onto Himself. Because Matthew uses that text as his proof of the fulfillment of the text. And it certainly is true that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He partook of all those things in His humanity. This is more a reference to the incarnation that the suffering servant, the Messiah, is a man. That He has partaken of these things along with His people whom He will redeem. That He has borne the causes of all these things which are our sins. And that He's been punished for our sins. But has He directly been punished for our illnesses or our sorrows or our griefs? And they're left with this puzzle. If He has, then why are we still have sorrows and griefs and sicknesses? And the Scriptures teach that He has taken away our sin by His offering on the cross. The passage is teaching us about sin and the atonement, Christ's substitution in our place for sin, but they take that text along with 1 Peter 2.24. You remember 1 Peter 2.24, we've preached on it many times, speaking about the Lord Jesus who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And these are their proof texts that Christ has paid for and purchased healing for all of our sicknesses in this life. That Christ has purchased our healing for physical disease on the cross and it is to be received in this life. And so they say stupid things like heal in these texts must refer to physical healing. But are all the saints healed in this life? Don't we all die someday? Every one of us dies someday, don't we? 
So in that sense, we certainly aren't all healed in this life by the death of Christ. In fact, one might say that none of us are healed under those terms by the death of Christ in this life. You see, these people cannot and will not admit that the facts destroy their false views. And so what they do is they deny that they're sick in the first place. That's one of their ploys. They weld on or bolt on to their faith Christian scientism. I'm not sick. Deny illness. Because if they admit that they're ill, that means they go to number B, which is they blame the sick for the lack of faith. They can't be sick because that would mean their faith was weak. They claim that anyone who is sick is because they don't have enough faith. They deny that most believers die of illness. They don't believe that death is an illness. And they don't believe that believers die because they grow ill and die. They think that it's possible to die just naturally. That it's not due to some underlying illness. It's not due to heart failure. It's not due to high blood pressure. You know, not due to sepsis. Not due to pneumonia. It's possible for believers to go all through life with divine healing of every illness because Christ paid for it at the cross and then just up and die. And that's not an illness that Christ's death has given us. You see where the problem is coming in here is that in fact Christ's death does obtain everlasting life for His people. And it's obtained, it's received in physical concrete form at the resurrection. That's when we're healed of all our illness too in the resurrection. Not in this life. We're not healed of all of our illness in this life. We're not healed from death in this life. But if you think about death for just a few moments, you'll realize that everybody dies of some illness or of trauma or violence. Those are the reasons people die. And it comes on all of us. We all die someday unless the Lord comes first. And none of this is incompatible with the truth of what Isaiah taught us in Isaiah 53, nor what Jesus taught us, nor what Peter taught us. None of this is incompatible, but it is incompatible with the false view that Christ has purchased physical healing for all His people in this life And therefore, you should just name it and claim it. Another thing these people fall into is this idea that if there's any sickness, it must be because of a demon spirit. So they go around casting out demon spirits from themselves, rebuking demon spirits of arthritis, of cancer, rebuking demon spirits in other people for whatever illness they have. Because they have this notion that if one becomes sick, it's because of the direct intervention of some demonic force which trivializes the real wicked work of demons, which is to mess with our minds and try to lead us astray in our hearts on occasion to corrupt minds in the ways we've discussed recently in other sermons. They don't understand that Sickness and dying in this life are due to the fall. They're due to man's sin. They're not usually due to particular sins that a person committed. They, they'll tell people, oh, well, the reason you're sick is because you've committed such and such a sin. Like Job's friends did. 
You've done something wrong. That's why you're in such trouble and why you're so sick. So these false doctrines force them to deny the reality around them and they descend into irrationality and emotional thinking. And ultimately, this forces them to question their faith because if healing is purchased by Jesus just like forgiveness, and if both are available to us now in this life, if I don't receive healing, then how do I know I've received forgiveness? I can see I'm sick. I can't see with my eyes whether I've been forgiven or not. So you'll find that these people will internally be very conflicted about whether they've actually been saved by the Lord, whether the death of Christ really takes away their sins, whether through faith they've been justified by trusting in the sacrifice of Jesus. Or the next thing you know, they're going to start working for works of righteousness in order to make up for their lack of faith or lack of the understanding of what faith is and what God has promised to us by faith. And since He hasn't promised us healing in this life of physical ailments, you see their faith is all screwed up. Now Jesus Himself used healing of diseases as a metaphor for the taking away of sin. We might read in Luke chapter 5 when Jesus went to eat with the tax collectors and the sinners and the scribes and Pharisees murmured, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see that Jesus compares in metaphorical terms the healing of sinners from their, from their sin, which only He can do, with the healing of sick people from their illnesses, which is what people go to physicians to do. Now, one of the other side problems that these people have is because of their false theology and their belief that they're not sick, that they've already been healed, all they need to do is name it and claim it, cast out the demon forces, and so forth and so on, is that now they don't, they tend to not like doctors at all. And to poo-poo all medicine and all doctors, and then they will oftentimes become enraptured with all sorts of conspiracy theories about doctors and about extreme, crazy, wackadoodle notions about conspiracies to kill everybody with the vaccines and so forth. But Matthew does connect miracles of healing with Isaiah 53, verse 4. Born our griefs, carried our sorrows, a fulfillment by Christ when He healed the sick. But notice Christ healed before He had died. Isaiah 53 doesn't promise Jesus took away all of our illnesses in this life. What Isaiah 53 promises is that Jesus takes away our guilt by His substitutionary death in our place at Calvary. Remember, if you go through Isaiah 53 and see what the consequences are of what Jesus did. Okay, you notice he never said anything about healing people's illnesses. He said he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He bore our sins. Our sins were laid on him. Our iniquities were laid on him. But when you get down to the bottom of it, what was the consequence for us? 
What does it say? He shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Justification is the central promise of Isaiah 53 that's a consequence of all that's said in the chapter and of all that Christ did when He bore our sins, when He was crushed by God, when He was judged in our place. It's justification for sin. It's not a promise of healing in this life. And when Peter quotes, by His stripes ye were healed, it's not in the context of healing from physical disease at all. There's no mention of healing of physical diseases in the whole book of 1 Peter. It's in the context of healing us from our sin, and specifically from our sin of going astray and turning to our own way. You remember what he said, that Christ bore our sins in His body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should be alive to righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, aorist, past tense, confirmed, done already. And then it says, for ye were as sheep who had gone astray. That's what we were healed from. It was from our sin. It was from going astray. And then he says, but ye are now returned unto the shepherd of your soul. This is what we were healed from by the stripes of Jesus. From going astray. From rebelling against God. From wandering away from the shepherd. But we've now been returned to the shepherd. We've been healed of that. Does that mean we never sin? No. It means that we never leave God, we never leave the shepherd out of rebellion into lostness. He has healed us. He has saved us from our disobedient sheep behavior. And remember Jesus said that His sheep hear His voice and follow Him. And He gives to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. In First Peter in chapter 1, He teaches us that there is redemption through the blood of the slain Lamb for the people of God. And in chapter 2, he teaches us that sins are born away in the body of Christ on the tree, that therefore we're dead to sins, therefore we're alive to righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, for and from the sin of departing from God, but now we're returned. Peter's exegesis of Isaiah 53 is that of rescue from the guilt and wickedness of sin against God, not some promise of divine healing of all physical ailments in this life. Now while there were times of great outpourings of miraculous healing, Scripture makes clear that it wasn't the norm. Plenty of people in the Scriptures, plenty of godly people, plenty of the Lord's people got sick and died. And there's reference to it in the Scriptures. And it's clear in the context of these references that these people weren't surprised by this and didn't think, well, whoa, 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 I thought we were all healed already and that the Lord's people couldn't get sick because Christ bought us healing at the cross. They clearly didn't believe this and clearly the church didn't believe this. I'm sure it's come up before in the history of Christianity, but this is a relatively new innovation in our own times at least. It's been recycled and now it's back in full force.
So consider John 11, the great raising of Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus died, didn't he? And in fact, Jesus obviously lingered for the purpose that Lazarus should die so that the glory of God might be revealed and the Lord's people might believe in the power of Christ to raise people from the dead. It says he was sick, that they sent word to him, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Jesus declines to heal him of his sickness. He didn't go to heal him of his sickness. He didn't heal him of his sickness there like he could have the centurion's servant. When Jesus heard that, He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified. Then it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When He heard He was sick, He abode two days still in the same place where He was. And then at verse 11, These things said He, and after that He saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said His disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that He had spoken of taking of rest and sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto Him. So Christ healed Lazarus by raising Him from the dead after He had declined to heal him when He was put on notice, when He was asked to come and heal His friend whom He loved. Then in Acts chapter 9, at verse 36, we read the story of how the lady named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas, was full of good works and alms, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her up in an upper chamber. And they called Peter, and he came and raised her from the dead. And presented her to them alive, lifted her up from the bed by her hand, called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Now this contradicts the the theory that Christ purchased healing for all of our sicknesses, and therefore the saints who are faithful, who trust, ought not to ever die. Obviously these people didn't think that. Obviously Peter didn't think that. But notice how this verse might be turned back on these people. (laughs) Why aren't you out raising people from the dead? After all, that's what these apostles did. That's what Jesus did. Isn't it the promise of resurrection that we all long for? If there is a promise of healing of natural disease in this life, then why not go ahead and say there's a promise that there'll be no more death in this life and that you ought to be raising people from the dead. And then in Philippians chapter 2, you remember it says, I suppose it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and the companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants, for he longed after you all. This is somebody that had come from the Philippians to minister to Paul. He longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Well, here's a servant of the Lord ministering to the Apostle Paul who was sick unto death. Long enough for the word to spread back to where he came from. And yet notice that Paul doesn't pretend that he just didn't have any faith. 
It's really bad. I mean, none of our believers are getting sick because the Lord Jesus paid for healing in this life to everybody. And then in 2 Timothy 4, remember He says that the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto His heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Salute Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus abode at Corinth, but Trophimus have I left at Miletum sick. Remember, Peter raised up from the dead Dorcas who had died and he was the apostle that people were healed by his shadow passing over them at one time. Here's the apostle Paul. The apostle Paul healed a host of people and here he's completely comfortable with telling these people that Trophimus is still sick back at Miletum. So these very people who the Lord had extended to them on occasion and in particular times and places miraculous powers of healing did not have a problem with discussing the sicknesses of the saints, their friends, in other contexts. And then in Third John, you remember the Apostle John wrote a friend of his, the elder unto the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Beloved, thou dost faithfully whatsoever thou dost to the brethren and to strangers, which hath borne witness of thy charity before the church." And if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well. So here's the Apostle John wishing for this brother in Christ to be in health. Well, why would he need to do a thing like that? Our lady false teacher here has told us that we need to stop pestering God to ask Him to give us things that He's already given us. Well, hadn't God already given Gaius health? By the death of Christ in this life? No, the answer is no, He hadn't. It was a thing to be greatly wished for and prayed for, but it certainly wasn't an automatic result of the death of Christ on the cross for His people. Now even Jesus testified that His people will sometimes be sick. You remember in Matthew 24 at the great judgment, where the king says to those on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, ye took me in naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. Then the righteous answer, Lord, when saw we thee hunger, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? When saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? The king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. So Christ will testify from His throne that His brethren were sometimes sick. And it was a good thing for His people to visit them in their sickness. Now, as I said, sickness and death are from the fall. They're not natural. One of the things 
about this world is that we are so divorced from the Scriptures that we come to believe that death is just its just natural. It's just part of the circle of life. And other such nonsense as that. No, death is ultimately a judgment for sin. The sin of Adam and the sin of us all. Now, as I said, every time you get sick or every time somebody gets sick, doesn't mean that it's because they committed some particular sin. You don't need to go over and denounce them for their sin like Job's friends did. But all sickness and all death and all sorrow are ultimately judgment for sin. And that has fallen upon all of nature and all of the creatures that God made. We see in Romans chapter 8 that the Scriptures teach us that the whole creation groans and travails waiting for the coming of the sons of God waiting to be rescued from this futility, from this corruption, which man's sin brought into this world and which affects us all. Now, there is an ultimate sense in which Christ's death saves us from physical illness, but not in this life, in glory. You know, Jesus didn't have to suffer and die to have the power to heal sick men and raise dead men from the grave. He always had that power. He's the one who gave us life to start with. It's not a big thing for the Lord Jesus to raise a man from the dead. He has the power to do it. He has the authority to do it. He says so in John chapter 5 and He demonstrated it during His ministry. And that power doesn't depend upon Him suffering and dying for the sin of His people. He did that. He came here to die to redeem us from the judgment for our sin, to take away the guilt for our sin, to empower the resurrection from the dead for His people. Why? That is when He shall change our vile bodies to be made like unto His glorious body. Why is that? Why? Because death and sickness and trouble Those are all part of the penalty for sin, the punishment for sin. Jesus has the physical power to take all that stuff away. But it was necessary that He should address the underlying cause and satisfy the justice of God which had imposed those punishments for our sin in the first place. See, it would be unjust for Christ by His power to just obliterate all physical illness, all sorrow, all want, all pain, all death in this world, and not to have made the payment of justice. That was the reason that those things were imposed as a punishment in the first place. Paul describes this glorious promise of physical resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. You remember that our ironclad promise of total physical healing only comes about when Christ raises our bodies at the resurrection. That's when the promise of guaranteed 
physical healing of all our diseases is to take place. Not now, not in this life. When Christ raises our bodies from the resurrection. Now it is true that that promise was certainly paid for by Jesus on the cross. Not a promise to heal us now of our physical ailments. A promise to heal us one day of everything that's wrong with us when He raises us up and clothes us in our recreated bodies, our spiritual bodies as Paul puts it. The problem was never God's power to raise up. The problem was the justice required for Him to do so. And so in Revelation chapter 21, we read these glorious promises. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven. The first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and He will dwell with them. They shall be His people and God Himself shall be with them and be their God, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is the true promise of physical healing that Christ obtained by dying for us to take away our sin. You see, there's a danger. Not only does this false teaching about guaranteed physical healing, not only does it destroy faith in the believer by forcing a falsehood upon the gospel. That's what this is. They're forcing a falsehood upon the gospel. They're making the gospel promise something that the gospel does not in fact promise and thereby they are distorting and mutilating the gospel. But notice that it distracts believers from the true purpose and work of Christ in our salvation. Now, instead of speaking of the glory of Christ's redemption, of Christ dying to save us, of Christ's paying the price for our sin, and of we being grateful and thankful and giving Him praise and worship, these people are all wrapped up in divine healing and in trotting around, denouncing demons and denouncing people that don't believe that they've already been healed and focusing on these sort of sign gifts. All their energy, it seems, is sapped away from the true glory of the Gospel, the true glory of what Jesus did for us, and redirected off into a path that's not even true, is deceptive and disingenuous and is a teaching of false theology that robs Christ of the glory He ought to receive for what He has actually done and what the Scriptures actually promised would be the result of what He did on the cross. And so at this table, we come every Lord's Day to worship the Lord Jesus and to give thanks for His offering for our sin and to acknowledge what it actually has fulfilled for each of those who put their trust in Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the redemption through His blood, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This false teaching will stir up nothing but confusion and a lack of peace 
with other people and with God. It'll put Christians at loggerheads with God because of these false ideas they entertain. They can't get peace with God because somehow in the back of their mind they suspect that He's not fulfilling His part of the deal or His promise or that their faith is weak. So this is why we must stand against this false teaching and proclaim the true promise of Christ's death. The true gospel, not a false gospel, the true gospel that for everyone who puts their trust in Jesus and calls on the name of the Lord, they'll be saved from their sin and one day they'll be saved from these vile, corrupt bodies that our sin has brought upon us. And so the bread represents the body of Christ broken for us. Let's give thanks for it then. O God, our Father, we rejoice that You did not withhold Your Son, Your only Son, Jesus, but You delivered Him up for us on the cross. And You laid upon Him our crimes and punished Him in our place. And we thank You that we have this bread that He left us to symbolize and to represent His body that was torn, it was mutilated, it was rendered almost not recognizably human because of the cruelty of wicked men. But it was done for us by Your determinate counsel and foreknowledge that He might be a sacrifice, a sweet savor unto You as an offering for our sin. And He has taken away our sin by being punished according to the law and according to your wrath, which should have been laid on us, was shifted onto Jesus and He bore it. We thank You that we can celebrate what He did through this bread and through this wine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he would give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed for us. The Scriptures tell us that after they had supped, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood for the remission of sin. Do as often as ye do it in remembrance of me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Well, let's stand and sing number 59 in the big blue book. The great physician now is near, the sympathizing Jesus. He speaks the drooping heart to cheer. Oh, hear the voice of Jesus. Sweetest note in seraph song. Sweetest name on mortal tongue. Sweetest carol ever sung. Jesus, blessed Jesus. Number 59.